There's a phrase I've heard that's used to describe the difference between the United States and Europe. And it goes something like this. In Europe, 100 kilometers is a long way. And in America, 100 years is a long time. This refers, of course, to the vast geography of the United States of America and the massive amounts of history in Europe. It's not uncommon for Americans to drive several hours for a weekend getaway, and it's not uncommon for people in England or Germany to live in houses that are older than my country. Here in the United States, our history only goes back a few hundred years at best. Everything before that is a shrouded mystery, or so most of us were taught in elementary school. So much of our identity comes from the story that we tell about ourselves, whether that's on an individual level or as a society. And as far as the United States is concerned, our story begins with Columbus and the Pilgrims. But that's not the whole story, is it? There were people here before Europeans arrived. And not just people. There were songs and stories and pottery and trade routes and cities and wars and great collaborations. There was culture. There was civilization. A civilization that has almost been entirely erased by time. These people, these ancient Americans, are long gone, but deep in the American heartland, on the banks of its mightiest river, their monuments still stand. I'm Logan Reynolds, your guide to the fantastic and forgotten, and you're listening to Routes Unbound. Today, we're traveling to the banks of the Mississippi and a thousand years into the past to visit what was once the largest city in North America, the Cahokia Mounds in Western Illinois. Stick around. There is a lot of mystery surrounding what the Americas were like before European colonization, and a lot that's been lost to history. Because of wars, genocide, disease, and because the Americans of that time didn't leave much behind for us to find. A combination of the materials they used to build with and the climate that they were living in, we don't have those great stone structures like the pyramids or Stonehenge. But that doesn't mean that they didn't leave behind anything. As European settlers began to push west, and settle on the frontier of the Mississippi River. They found an area covered with large earthen mounds. The French fur trappers, who had been in the area since the 1600s, referred to this place as Cahokia, after the native tribe that still lived nearby. What the builders of these mounds called themselves is not known, and probably never will be. The largest of these mounds, known locally as Monk's Mound, was a four-terraced pyramid over 100 feet tall. But who built these strange earthworks? And for what? And where are they now? At the time, archaeologists and non-archaeologists alike scoffed at the idea that they had been constructed by the Native Americans. After all, they were seen as simple-minded savages and capable of such things. Toltecs, Vikings, Hindus, there were various other people groups put forth as possible theories for the origins of these mounds. But as it would turn out, these early settlers and archaeologists were blinded by their, frankly, horrible racism and preconceived notions. The mounds were built by Native Americans, and they were far more than just giant lumps of dirt. At their height, they served as the foundation for a city that might have been larger than London was at the time. A city whose culture spread as far as the Great Lakes to the north and the Gulf of Mexico to the south. Today, this civilization is often referred to as the Mississippian culture, 
And that's truly what it was. These people, they had their own art, their own songs and dances, their own burial customs and religion, their own stories about God and the creation of the world, their own way of dressing and behaving and moving through society, their own way of building houses and fortifications. And it was a way of life that was adopted across a large swath of what is the present-day eastern United States. And this site near present-day St. Louis, where most of these mounds are located, was the capital city, the epicenter of this culture. To put it simply, Cahokia was a feat of human collaboration during a time in which such unity was rare. If you look up a picture of Cahokia on the internet, you'll see some large, grassy pyramid-type structures. But back at its height, these mounds would have held large wooden buildings on top of them, and a wall surrounding this complex array of structures. Cahokia's story begins in earnest around the 10th century, when mound building first began in the area east of St. Louis. Those who lived there left no written record about it, and what we know about them comes from what they left behind on their pottery and other forms of art, and from oral histories of tribes such as the Osage in Oklahoma, who are said to be the descendants of the mound builders of Cahokia. Still, the complexity and the vastness of their cities can tell us a lot about who these people were. Up until this point in North American history, most people east of the Mississippi were still hunter-gatherers. So when the people of Cahokia settled down, it would have coincided with an agricultural revolution of sorts. With crops to feed the population, the people could put down roots, traditions and systems could emerge, and a civilization could flourish. Being at the confluence of the Missouri, Illinois, and Mississippi rivers, the city would have been a major trading hub. At some point, Many decades after the construction of the mounds, defensive walls were built around the main public areas of the city, suggesting that the people of Cahokia had enemies, though who or what they were is not known. These walls would be rebuilt a handful of times over the next few centuries. By the 1300s, Cahokia began to decline, and we're still not entirely sure why. It seems a variety of factors, including famine, natural disasters such as flooding, a change in climate, or warfare could all have contributed to the city's collapse. But by the 1400s, the site was essentially abandoned. It wouldn't be until 200 years later when the Cahokia tribe of the Illinois Confederacy resettled in the area and gave the place the name we call it today. There's no better way to understand a place than to visit it. And Cahokia is just a few hours east of my family's farm. So I decided to set out and see the mounds for myself. So I am currently driving through downtown St. Louis in the middle of rush hour. I'm actually not heading to Cahokia quite yet. My first stop is a public library in a small suburb east of the city. That's where the Cahokia Archaeological Society meets once a month. I'm hoping that somebody there can tell me more about the mounds. All right, I think we are here just in time. Let's check it out. Am I in the right place for the Healthy Archaeological Society? You are, yeah. Okay. Um, so you're going to go down these stairs and oh, then turn steps. right. Cool. Interesting that you brought this up because I was just in a historical society.
When I arrived for the meeting, I found a small group of people engaged in a quiet conversation about securing funding for some sort of preservation project. They seemed surprised, but excited to see me there. The meetings are open to the general public, but I got the impression that I was the first guest they'd had in some time. Cave art in Cave and Rock Shelter art in southern Illinois, as well as Missouri. Shortly after I sat down, a presentation began, complete with a PowerPoint and a short Q&A session about the work currently going on to preserve mounds west of the river. In another settlement connected to the primary site of Cahokia, I got the impression that pre-Columbian archaeology as a field was filled with characters, some good, some evil. For every story they told about some well-meaning archaeologist or nonprofit working to save and preserve the mounds, there was another story about local collectors who would come dig them up in the middle of the night, or developers who would bulldoze the mounds to make room for houses and roads. There are a handful of archaeologists who are part of the society and attend most of the meetings, but they were in the field on the day that I came, doing research, and nobody else wanted to speak into the microphone for me. So after the meeting, I headed straight to the hotel room to get ready for the next day. It is a lovely good morning in far west Illinois. I'm only about six minutes from Cahokia, which is really crazy to me because I'm essentially still just in the middle of a suburb. Just drove past a department store, a couple of fast food places, about to go underneath a highway overpass. It definitely doesn't feel like I'm driving towards some ancient city. The city's starting to thin out a little bit, and here's a sign, Cahokia Mound State Historic Site. And I'm already starting to see a few mounds here. They mostly just look like what you would expect, grassy hills at somewhat sharp angles. Oh, wow. Up here on the right is Monk's Mound. And that is definitely man-made. It is remarkable to me that this was once the site of the largest city in North America at its time. Larger than London was at the time that it was at its peak. And yet today, there's not even a gate or a fence. It's literally just off the highway. You pull off and park and walk right up to the top. So getting out of the car and closer to the pyramid, First impressions, to give you an idea of what it looks like, imagine taking the bottom half of the Great Pyramid of Giza, covering it with soil and grass, and that's pretty much it. It is insane that this thing was built by hand. I mean, absolutely insane to think about creating something like this with no machines, nothing but just human power, Baskets, shovels, truly impressive. The network of paved walking trails extends from the parking area and weaves its way along the base of many of the mounds. But one trail travels up the side of Monk's Mound to the very top. It's a steep climb and a popular place for the locals to exercise. So these concrete steps are here today. The back in the times of Cahokia, they would have been log steps. There's three separate terraces of Monk's Mound, and the stairs take you up each one. Morning. Morning. Wow, this is, all right. I'm up to the final terrace, and it is steep. <laughs> 
And of course, I would come up here to record a podcast on the day that they are trimming the grass. So I apologize about the noise in the background. Monk's Mound looks like a large, strange, angular hill from the ground. But as you're climbing the steps, it becomes easier to imagine what it must have been like when buildings graced its top. It feels special, set apart, like a tower of civilization in an otherwise wild landscape. Looking out from the top of Monk's Mound, you can see the other various mounds rising from the sea of green trees. And the wide, flat, spacious area that was once the Grand Plaza of Cahokia. If you sit for a minute, you can almost imagine the crowds of people, the meetings and parties and funerals and weddings and games that were all had here in this place. Whoever would have stood atop this mound and looked out would have surely felt like a king. It's believed that the top of Monk's Mound is where the leader of Cahokia made his home. Today, Cahokia is nothing but grass-covered mounds on the side of the road, but it would have looked a lot different in its heyday. First of all, there would have been a lot of buildings here, not just on top of the mounds, but all around them, too. Homes made of mud and sticks and straw. There would have been spaces dedicated to preparing food and specific trades, such as jewelry makers and potters. And traders from up and down the Mississippi River would have been present selling their goods, purchasing others. In the Grand Plaza at the center of the city, a wide, flat area would have been constantly buzzing with excitement. But life in Cahokia wasn't always good for everyone. There are scores of mounds in and around Cahokia of different sizes and shapes, and Monk's Mound is the largest of them all. But the most infamous is Mound 72. Some 800 meters south of Monk's Mound, Mound 72 is much smaller than many of the other mounds. It's only about 10 feet tall, also, unlike most of the other mounds that are oriented north to south, Mound 72 sits diagonally, facing northwest and southeast. This strange orientation led researchers to do an excavation of the mound in the 1960s. And what they found would prove to be one of the most significant discoveries about the people of Cahokia. Mound 72 was really several smaller mounds that had been covered over and combined in various phases over the years. Inside, were the remains of over 250 people. Mound 72 was the site of multiple mass burials. One of the most prominent burials is that of what is thought to be an early ruler of the city. It's the remains of a tall man in his 40s who was placed on a raised platform. Beneath him was a layer of beads made from seashells, over 20,000 of them. And they were arranged in the shape of a bird, with the bird's head and body corresponding to that of the man's. Around the same time that this excavation was taking place, another excavation at Monk's Mound revealed a small clay tablet on which was the image of a man with a bird face. The bird man, as it is sometimes called, was a common symbol among the Mississippian culture and makes its appearance in various types of artifacts. It's often associated with great warriors or rulers. So the burial at Mound 72 could have been that of some prominent Cahokian warrior. Of the other various bodies discovered in the mound, the majority of them were young women. These bodies were buried neatly in rows and showed little signs of trauma. It's believed that they were killed as an act of ritual sacrifice, 
possibly accompanying the burial of a very important person. In a separate burial site within the mound, the bodies of 40 men and women were discovered. These people were killed by violent means, and their bones carry signs of fractures, decapitations, and arrow wounds. It's possible that this group was buried alive and could have been prisoners of war. All right, I think the mowers have stopped, at least for the time being, so maybe I'll talk a little bit. Yeah, once you get up to the top of Monk's Mound, you realize how high it actually is. So you can see in every direction quite some ways. You can even see the skyline of St. Louis on the horizon just across the Mississippi River. There's something very strange to me about standing on top of this ancient cultural monument, staring out and seeing the Gateway Arch in the distance a very recent cultural monument. And just the juxtaposition of those two things within eyesight of each other. I don't know, I don't know what it means, but it's interesting. After walking around on top of Bunk's Mound, I descended back into the present day and back to the parking lot just a short walk away. Then I headed down the road to another side of interest. About a half mile down the road from Monk's Mound is a Woodhenge, which is exactly what it sounds like. Stonehenge, but with wood. There were a few of these sites that were constructed in Cahokia around a thousand years ago. It's basically a big circle, about the size of a football field, made out of large tree trunks, a good 20 feet high, and aligned with the sun. Like many ancient civilizations, the people of Cahokia put a lot of emphasis on the movement of the sun and the stars. This woodhenge would have helped them mark the summer and winter solstices, and the spring and fall equinox, and perhaps even lunar cycles or the movement of certain constellations. Essentially, it functioned as a giant calendar, and was built to be aligned with the various mounds in its vicinity. I didn't stay much longer after finding the woodhenge. There wasn't much more to see, honestly. Most of Cahokia's story lies beneath the grass, or has been washed away with all of the years. And while the Osage Nation, the descendants of these ancient Americans, has fought to preserve and protect the site, it's faced many challenges. Like many other places that I explore, I found myself wondering, how did Cahokia become so forgotten? And one might be tempted to say that it's not. I mean, it is registered as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. That's true, but Cahokia doesn't live in the public consciousness the way the Empire State Building does or Mount Rushmore, or Stonehenge, or Yosemite, or the Golden Gate Bridge. You won't find pictures of the mounds plastered on stamps and postcards in airports. And why is that? I have a few theories. The first being that earthen mounds, however significant they might be, just aren't as sexy of a landmark as other sites. You can only experience a big lump of dirt so much. Stonehenge feels out of place, man-made, mystical almost. But perhaps dirt and grass just don't have the same effect. While this likely plays a large role in Cahokia's relative obscurity, I believe there could be other causes at play. Cahokia, especially during its initial rediscovery and excavation, has never fit the narrative of U.S. expansion. It doesn't easily align with the story that we have told about ourselves. That this continent was empty and ready for taking. Maybe the simplest explanation is that Cahokia isn't connected to us modern-day Americans. And for that reason, it's not our monument to claim. For instance, 
It was the ancestors of modern Egyptians who built the pyramids. The ancestors of modern Italians who built the Colosseum. It was our grandparents and great-grandparents who built the Empire State Building. In those instances, the monuments stand as a passage through time to those we are bonded with through blood and lineage and culture and shared history. But Cahokia does not belong to us in that way. It's not part of our story, part of our people's history. Maybe the reason Cahokia is forgotten is not because it's insignificant, but because it was built by ghosts, specters of the historical record. There is one other reason I think that the public imagination of Americans tends not to gravitate towards places like Cahokia. It's because it serves as a reminder that no civilization lasts forever which is a stark contrast to the optimistic vision of westward expansion offered by the Gateway Arch. One day, maybe a thousand years from now, there could be a small group of people in the basement of some futuristic library brainstorming ways to preserve the remnants of our shopping malls and football stadiums. Archaeologists might dig up the remains of our most prominent people and put them on display for all to see. Maybe... Cahokia unsettles us, because deep down, we know that one day, we too, will be ghosts. This episode of Routes Unbound was written and produced by me, Logan Reynolds. If you want more content about the fantastic and forgotten, follow us on social media. You can find links in the description of this episode. Special thanks this episode to the Cahokia Archaeological Society. And if you want to learn more about the Cahokia Mounds or help in efforts to preserve them, a good place to start is CahokiaMounds.com, the website of the Cahokia Mounds Museum Society. Or if you want to learn more about the Osage Nation, visit OsageCulture.com. Until next time, Slow down, be human, and try looking up at the stars every once in a while. You might enjoy it. The Native Americans sure did.